Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This weekend, it's the best movie weekend of the year. It's Barbenheimer. Jeff Giles, which of the two are you going to see first? I saw Oppenheimer last night. Oh, um, I'm, su- I'm supposed to see Barbie tonight. I don't know if I have the mental fortitude <laughs> to be happy ever again, but um, <laughs> but it is a possibility. It's on the table. There's a seat waiting for me. I will, I'm dying to see Barbie. I just need some time around it. That's Jeff Giles, executive Hollywood editor at Vanity Fair. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. We are talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'll get into all the reasons why in a minute, but I'm sitting here with Delia Kai, senior Vanity's correspondent here at Vanity Fair covering culture and celebrity. Delia, have you seen either film yet? I have not seen either yet. Tomorrow night I'm seeing Barbie, and then Monday I'm seeing Oppenheimer, so I'm going to let myself recover over the weekend. So you're not doing the double feature because AMC says more than 40,000 people have already purchased, you know, double feature tickets to see them both in the same day. I I can't sit for that long. <laughs> That's a long day. You know, I really respect everyone who's been doing that. I'm splitting them up too. I'm doing Oppenheimer first thing Friday morning, the very first Friday showing in IMAX, and then Barbie with my kids over the weekend, uh, hoping that it's appropriate for young kids. We will see about that. Look, there are so many questions uh, about Barbie, about Oppenheimer, about the state of the box office, about the strike. Uh, that's why on this episode, we can dig into all of it and talking about this, this Barbie-Heimer phenomenon. Is that even the right way to say it? Barbie-Heimer? I've seen people say Boppenheimer. Jeff, what do you say? Um, I say Barbenheimer. I say it constantly. <laughs> People ask me to stop saying it. I think one of the hilarious things that we should point out is there's such different movies. And I think that's why people are having fun with this idea. It's a ridiculous double feature. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And um, what did they say? 40,000 people are going to see both? That's what AMC said. That's great. I mean, that's going to get them 8,800 grand or something. Um, But I'm I'm no Oppenheimer, so check my math. Um, (laughs) But I love that it's a it's a Exciting for movie going, even if putting these two movies together, I don't think makes sense in a lot of worlds. All right, let's let's immerse ourselves in both of these worlds. Let's listen to a bit of both movies. Here's a little bit of the trailer for Oppenheimer and then Barbie. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. Yeah, they're also staring at me. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. If this got out, 
this could mean extremely weird things for our world. Catastrophic! We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. No one rests until this doll is back in a box. It is an amazing contrast. Uh, It's the full spectrum of cinema right there between the two. Dill, you've been tracking how this has been happening. This has become a meme, but what, it started months ago. Months ago, if I, I mean, it feels like it's been years. <laughs> like that first look was um, of, of Margot Robbie in the car. That was like April 2022. So it's only been a little bit more than a year, but it seems like it's been forever. Um, but I, I love like the combo. I think just the, the contrast is so funny. There's just something about like the duality of man, you know, being represented in these two movies coming out at the yeah. same time. As I was watching Oppenheimer, I thought like, oh, Barbie is about the patriarchy. This is the patriarchy. So um, I'm not going to write that essay because now (laughs) I'm only good for one sentence, but somebody else can write that. (laughs) Tell me if it's true. There's so many essays to write. Delia, you've got one for us. It's up on VanityFair.com about what Barbie represents about uh, empowerment and and girls. Uh, what, What did you write about? So I wrote an essay just sort of tying uh, the Barbie mania to kind of this current cultural moment where we have Taylor Swift running around uh, re-recording and performing songs from her youth. Um, In fashion, uh, there's kind of this real uh, leaning into sort of what what like on TikTok they're calling like coquette core, um, but what I'm just calling like little girl fashion. Um, I mean, I came to work today with a little bow tied around my work bag. And, you know, there's it, it was it's fun, but I think there's also this kind of funny uh, dissonance between like, you know, I'm a 30 year old woman going to work. Why does this ribbon make me so happy? Um, and so there's like a return in fashion to like Mary Jane uh, shoes and like baby tees, pleated skirts. Um, and then just like the discourse online about the way that everyone's sort of saying, like, I, I think it really started with uh, Megan Thee Stallion's Hot Girl Summer um, and that sort of phrase has just been twisted and and contorted in all these ways so that people can kind of brand like, you know, taking a walk as like a hot girl walk um, or, you know, uh, certain brands are named like cool girl brands. And so I was just really, uh, I think, fixated on this idea that everyone wants to be a girl, quote unquote. And I I kind of (laughs) love thinking about that as a reaction to maybe just like what's going on in the world. Like why is this, there is this kind of retreat into this nostalgia and also just kind of like the trappings of this very conventional girlhood, mm-hmm. you know, like why are adults so obsessed with a movie about a doll? Um, you know, there's something I think both like sort of eerie and also kind of understandable when you look at it just in terms of like how complicated and, and like, crazy like the, the current state of the world feels like everyone right. kind of wants to feel a little bit like like almost like absolving themselves of responsibility because like you know if you're a little girl you don't need to worry about uh bodily autonomy you know that's like for adults to take care of and so I think everyone's just trying to shrug off a little bit of of that sense of obligation and and just trying to like like everyone just wants to have fun and go see Barbie and not think too hard about things as someone who's been counting down for probably six months uh, with my six-year-old daughter, I mean, looking forward to Barbie, I, I appreciate you, you pushing me to think a little bit more about what is that beneath the surface? Mm-hmm. Other than just wanting her to enjoy the movie, why am I so psyched for it also? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think um, there's something great about um, the fact that this is a project 
driven by a cool actor, Margot Robbie. She went to Greta Gerwig, who was, you know, must have made Mattel nervous for a few seconds at least. Greta mm-hmm. Gerwig had to bring her partner into it, Noah Baumbach. So it, it really, it's not just that it's, it, it looks like it's a contact high of a movie, right? But it also mm-hmm. clearly has cool feminist, strong people behind it that will do something weird. And from the very first stuff we saw, you could see that there was a sensibility at play, which wasn't pure Barbie mm-hmm. marketing. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the cultural context for Barbie. What about Oppenheimer? Jeff, What what is the, you know, when you think about the state of the world as it applies and as it relates to Oppenheimer? Um, Thank you for asking me, Brian. The, movie? the state of the world is bad. <laughs> uh, nuclear weapons are quite bad. You know, this is, especially for Nolan, who is one of our only directors who makes giant kind of Kubrick weirdnesses and really pushes all kinds of boundaries. I mean, I hope he doesn't listen to this. This is, it's a much more conventional movie. It's more like a biopic than you might expect from him. It's very much that as a metaphor, it's about man and literally man, because there's not many females in this movie. Although Emily Blunt has a really good part and Florence Pugh tries very hard with what she's given. It's about, you know, a scientist creating something that gets out of his control. You know, it's not a new theme. I mean, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein 200 years ago, so we know this is an issue, but it really is, especially when nuclear weapons are threatened, still threatened regularly. It's sort of astonishing. One of the things that um, Oppenheimer thought was what this totally sensible thing, like if we know we have this bomb that can destroy the world, we won't use it. Don't worry, we'll never use it. And hearing him say that, you just think, you poor bastard, you know? Mm. Um, And that in some ways is the theme of the movie. I've heard Nolan talk about it as, as, obviously he wasn't thinking about AI and the dangers of AI when he worked in this movie, but but that is another thing where the people who created it are now saying, oh no, what have we done? You better regulate us. Um, And, um, but I think whatever's going on in the world the movies tend to remind us of it. There was a time when 9-11 seemed to be the subject of every movie we saw. There was a time when COVID seemed to be the subject of every movie. So contextually, I wouldn't say this is an upbeat movie, but it's riveting in many ways. Mm. Um, And it certainly makes you think, I don't see how you could see it after Barbie. I think you must (laughs) see Barbie second. You just have to, unless you really want to prove you can do it. (laughs) <laughs> that is my advice for those 40,000 ticket buyers. Right. I am glad that we are advancing this debate. I was thinking, as you're describing Oppenheimer and the real-life Oppenheimer, let's listen to the, the real man in his own words before we talk more about the, the, the film version. Here he is uh, talking about the very first nuclear test uh, in New Mexico, July 16th, 1945. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That was a very early podcast, sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was going to ask, does Killian Murphy pull it off? Does he play Oppenheimer well? He's fantastic. The movie across the board, the acting is fantastic. There's no way around it. You know, I'm a very cynical, negative person, and it's the (laughs) acting is fantastic. Um, 
and the writing is fantastic. I, I think maybe there's too much of it, <laughs> but mm. but um, it's a, it really is um, the acting, the cast. It's phenomenal. It's one of those movies where someone pops up and you go, oh, Oscar winner, one scene, Oscar winner, one scene. <laughs> um, because Christopher Nolan, because of his stature, can get anybody to come to his movies. And it's, so it is an all-star team in a really great way. Well, the biggest gripe I've heard is the length. It sounds like you're on the team that says, eh, it's a little too long, but that's okay. It's he should do what he wants. I'm Christopher Nolan knows <laughs> knows better than me. And so if anyone's going to do it, he, you know, he's taking on the subject of the future of civilization. So I, I don't mind giving him 30 extra minutes or whatever. And do I need to see it in IMAX? Um, I'm not going to answer that question because I fear for my safety. So let's go to Delia. Just, but but isn't it so interesting? There are all of these questions when it comes to Barbenheimer yeah, weekend, right? Do the right. order to see right, it I, and whether whether you have to see I'm, it in IMAX 70 millimeter yeah. or whether the normal IMAX will do. There's, I know. And I will. Okay. Okay. I'm going to answer oh, your question. Answer. If anything happens to me, Brian, this is going to be a record. Um, <laughs> I would say you don't have to. There's some spectacular explosions, some spectacular star stuff. There are a lot of close-ups and a lot of talking in the movie. I don't say that as a negative thing. The screenplay is great, but it isn't somebody jumping out of an airplane on a motorcycle. You know, it, uh, so I was a little surprised. It's less IMAX ready than um, I would have thought, but it's still stunning to look at and mm. probably worth it for those test sequences right. where you see basically an idea of what Armageddon would look like. All right, we've heard Jeff's review of Oppenheimer. There's a lot more to talk about, about both Barbie and Oppenheimer. Quick break, more in just a moment. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hive. And we're back here on Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Delia Kai and Jeff Giles about Barbenheimer Weekend. You know, let's talk, Delia, about the marketing behind all of this. Uh, Oppenheimer, I, I think it's been flawlessly uh, rolled out by uh, Universal. Same with Warner Brothers and Barbie. To see pink everything everywhere, uh, you know, in, in some ways, the, the marketing campaign has been as entertaining as as the movie appears to be. They've, they've been able to do this simultaneously in so many places in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, I think once I saw the like progressive insurance ad, I was like, wow, Barbie is truly everywhere. <laughs> I think coming down 
down to the studio this morning. I even just heard some people from Condé Nast talking like, I can't wait until it's over. Ah. Uh, like it's truly <laughs> reached like peak capacity, you know. Too much? Maybe too much. But I always try to like remember that like, you know, when you work in media, you you see like 200% of everything. I think the normal American person is probably like pretty aware and pretty excited for for Barbie and, and Oppenheimer, but mostly Barbie probably. <laughs> And they're probably not overwhelmed yet, but I, I think I, I definitely feel overwhelmed. I mean, when my wife tried to get me to buy a $100 Barbie pool floaty mm-hmm. <laughs> that should be like 10 bucks, yeah, you know, that's where I drew the line. That's the new uh, pink tax. Right, it really is. It's the new <laughs> pink tax. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. What does it say, Jeff, if anything, about these two studios, given that Nolan was with Warner Brothers and famously left, and now they're releasing <laughs> Barbie this weekend? You know, I think they've done a great job starting with Tom Cruise when he— I think was one of the first people to say, go see a double feature. That was a masterful thing to do because I figure he knew that people would have to to agree with him and make it a friendly thing. It was a very smart, anti-competitive paradigm to set up. Um, I just wanted to use the word paradigm. Now I'll move forward. <laughs> Nolan's had a rough, in some ways, few years. I think he doesn't have the amount of Oscars that we might have expected him to have. I can't speak for him. And Tennant really got hurt by the pandemic, clearly. So there must have been a part of him that said, I can't believe I am now competing with a doll. But the truth is, it's fantastic for anybody to know what's coming out in theaters, let alone going to see it, let alone going to see five and a half hours worth of movies Mm. that they're excited about. And we're not even talking about Mission Impossible, which I assume will be the biggest movie of the summer. So the fact that we're going back to a climate where box office seems exciting and we know about it is just gigantic. And after the pandemic, um, the asterisk, of course, is the strikes, which means Hollywood is in a different kind of pandemic during a strike pandemic. So they're in no way out of the woods. But in terms of the movie theater industry and fans being excited, this is a godsend, I think. Well, on that point about energy behind the box office, um, Delia, it seems like, you know, some people are yearning for cultural moments like Mm -hmm. this, where, you know, environment where it seems like we don't have anything in common anymore. Everybody's watching their own things on their own screens. Yeah. So... It's so refreshing, so exciting to feel like at least some portion of the American population are kind of psyched about the same thing at the same time. Definitely. It's it's kind of funny that like this is kind of what is our monoculture moment right now. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, both films are so maximalist in a way, like especially, you know, just even Barbie's marketing, very maximalist. There's nothing kind of more dramatic than a nuclear bomb. But <laughs> as we we're talking, I kind of was formulating a little theory of maybe what what you could tie the two films together in terms of how they're both almost like sci-fi movies where, you know, it's about humanity confronting like a a figment of their imagination made real and and sort of really confronting the consequences of it. Mm. And that's, I think, obviously really, like Jeff said, high on our mind right now where we're thinking about all this technology and all this AI and kind of just the world we've created for ourselves and kind of how we are all reckoning with it in, in very personal ways. So I think that sort of is what's tapping into this like collective nerve of of kind of wanting to see it and wanting to experience it. And maybe what's the word like 
vicariously living through both Oppenheimer and, you know, these like (laughs) fictional Mattel executives who are like, what have we done? You know, (laughs) I think that's the feeling right now, right? It's just a collective like, what have we done to ourselves? (laughs) I think I think Mattel made a great took a great risk. And yeah. I remember when they wouldn't let Barbie be in the original Toy Story movie, which was a colossal mistake on the order of like M&M's not wanting to be an E.T. So Reese's Pieces became famous. These are deep old cuts of nostalgia for you. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, taking the risk is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also I'm curious, Delia, is there still a like a, a any guilt around playing with Barbies and um, for girls growing up in the last 20 years or, and does this help in terms of making it seem like not just a uh, doll, a blonde doll, essentially? Yeah. I I mean, I think there was a time, I think probably around the time that I was coming up um, in like childhood and as a teenager where Barbie felt very passe, like it sort of felt like very not feminist. Barbie, you know, is kind of the embodiment of an airhead that you're not supposed to be. But I think just in terms of the the feeling around like kind of pop feminism and and sort of this idea of of toys like Barbie where there's I think people are a bit more relaxed about it. like I think there's this idea that oh it's not that serious like Barbie is a doll like because I think we saw Mattel you know a few years ago really try to keep up with the times and they would you know launch all these really uh, different dolls in different sizes and different um, kind of like ethnicities mm-hmm. and you know it sort of seemed like they were tra- giving us what people were asking for for a long time where, you know, we were saying like Barbie is such a, you know, narrow definition of of uh, like womanhood. And so they're kind of trying to expand. And I just, I don't think that really went. Not that like it didn't go anywhere. I think they got a lot of great press about it. But I think at the end of the day, there is this like, we've become a bit more permissive, I think, about having this nostalgia of just, you know, kind of Margot Robbie figure um, and, and kind of enjoying I think enjoying the nostalgia of it, I think we don't feel bad about it anymore. Like, I think some of the issues that maybe we had around it maybe 10 years ago, those haven't been resolved, right? But I think there's less of, I think, like a moral panic, maybe. Mm. Maybe we're just too tired and we just want to, like, play (laughs) with dolls and not think about it. Well, speaking of someone who has a Barbie room in his house, because we call my daughter's playroom the Barbie room. And again, only six, too young for these moral questions. Mm -hmm. But it means a lot to me as a dad when I'm in the the aisle at Target and there's a wide variety of dolls Mm -hmm. and there's a wide variety of characters and shapes and doing different things. They have really evolved the brand. They've Mm -hmm. really expanded the world of the brand Mm -hmm. in a way that is very smart. Even if at the end of the day, Margot Robbie is the one playing Barbie in Barbie. Right. Wasn't there a moment, Jeff, where Amy Schumer was attached? There was. Uh, obviously, it would have been a completely different mm-hmm. kind of movie. And But I think to what Delia is saying, there's something so great for Mattel, but also maybe great for all the people that loved Barbie, which is Barbie wasn't lame. You just didn't understand her. And now we're going to explain <laughs> that it's actually fun and cool and weird and like, you know, how many other chances would that doll have to fit in our current culture? Mm-hmm. You know, so again, you have to adapt or die, I think. And Greta Gerwig has talked about making this film subversive, right? That it plays on multiple levels. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll all see for ourselves this weekend. Um, yeah, but Margot Robbie has too. I don't think either of them would have made it. I think when we put Margot on the cover at the end of the year, last year, 
she said, there's, you know, it'd be easy to make an obvious Barbie movie. I'm not going to make an obvious Barbie movie. And I don't think anyone involved in this would have. Certainly not. Ryan Gosling wouldn't have showed up if um, he was just going to play dumb, smooth Ken. <laughs> uh, earlier in the year, uh, Delia, you wrote for the magazine, uh, it, the title of the piece was It's a Barbie World, right? And you called her the original lifestyle influencer. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, it's, you know, back to the future. It really is. I wrote that piece because I'd gone to L.A. and looked at Mattel's team that they have in-house for producing Barbie's Instagram and TikTok account. Um, and what's just like kind of really funny is that especially on TikTok, they have Barbie, you know, in these videos and she is acting like an influencer. Like she's doing pottery. She's um, what were like the pandemic activities. She's like making sourdough. It felt like being in a fun house of mirrors looking at, you know, Barbie imitating influencers who, you know, you could argue that all of the influencers we have now are sort of taking a leaf out of Barbie's playbook with like, you know, infinite outfits and kind of this idealized life. And they're just all like out and about. Uh, and I remember I was talking to, I think one of the execs there was like, you know, like, like little girls are not necessarily watching Barbie on TikTok yet. You know, who is this for? And she was saying, well, you know, we want like a lifetime relationship with our customers, whether they're little girls now, whether they're, you know, 30-year-old women like me on TikTok, whether they are parents about to buy Barbies. She was like, we are in for the long haul, mm. which really struck me. <laughs> my favorite is when my six-year-old goes to her uh, grandmother's house and plays with grandmother's Barbies. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. And then talk about a lifelong relationship. Yeah. Um, but Jeff, let's talk about the crass commercial part of this for a moment. You know, Mattel's name came up earlier. This is all about building uh, a, a whole empire of movies based on different toys, right? And if this works, you know, Mattel can be the new Marvel. Am I, am I overhyping it? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think they can make enough movies out of this that we get sick of them. Oh, um, but I think the good news is like, we don't have to go watch them if we don't like them or if they're not good. <laughs> I, I haven't seen every superhero movie made. Yeah, I think they'll make a ton of money, but I think as long as it's something the audiences <laughs> actually love, it it doesn't feel like a franchise made out of robot cars that just keep coming out no matter what until um, an Oppenheimer invents a bomb. Like, I think um, <laughs> I'm sure they want the money, in other words, but as long as they're making a fun, good, surprising movie, I yeah. like let them make their money. You know, <laughs> someone, another corporation is going to make the money doing something equally um, craven. So I'm fine. I feel like I agree. Like, if they kind of master this formula of like, taking something familiar, but making it smart. Like, you know, is there a world where there's like, like a really serious film to be made about Hot Wheels cars? You know, like, is that mm -hmm. going to be the new Fast and Furious? Right. Because um, I would be interested in that, you know. <laughs> I mean, my son would want to see that 10 times in yeah, a row. Yeah. yeah. I remember years ago, the most ridiculous thing any of us had ever heard was that they were making a movie out of a theme park ride called Pirates of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> and like, that was really good for a couple movies. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And it kept going as everything has to. But, um, you know, that seemed absurd. How do you get a movie out of a theme park ride? Um, <laughs> so you never know what's going to happen. There are really good surprises. Chris Nolan obviously made Batman movies that were very different than what a lot of people were used to. Mm. So who's going to win this weekend? Will it be Barbie? Will it be Oppenheimer? More about that in just a moment. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. 
Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. All right, welcome back to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive, talking about Barbie versus Oppenheimer. So, Jeff Giles, you've been looking at the tracking for both these films. Uh, First of all, what is tracking and and what does it show for how these two films are going to fare this weekend and beyond? Tracking just means um, a kind of polling. What movies you're going to go see? How much is it likely to make? You know, I I could draw the suspense out, but Barbie is going to clobber. Oppenheimer, that's not just because there's so much excitement around it. It's, it's, Oppenheimer's three plus hours long. It simply can't play as many times. Right. Um, it, it's going to do fine. It's going to make its money and it's going to be beloved in a lot of circles. And you will definitely be hearing about it in, at Oscar time. Um, in terms of cash dollars, Barbie will make a probably at least a hundred million opening weekend and Oppenheimer will maybe make 50. It'll take Oppenheimer longer to make the kind of money it's going to make. But that's fine. I'm, you know, it's it's not a one weekend movie. And I have a feeling people go to see Barbie a bunch of times if they love it, right? Yeah, I think so, too. I think there's going to be repeat viewing. Um, Delia, when it comes to the box office more broadly, how, how do you think about this environment right now where, you know, streaming is the default, mm-hmm. but there are reasons why people will sometimes go back to theaters? I think now... Um, movies have to feel like an event. Like, I think about the Despicable Me uh, movie. I don't, like, whatever it was called, how, you know, there's this whole uh, just, like, internet gag where it was, like, you dress up like one of the minions and then you go, um, and that's kind of the fun of it, and you can document it, you can post it about it on social media. So I think any kind of, like, movie that feels like something that you can participate in, mm-hmm. um, whether it's seeing the double feature with with Barbenheimer or even just dressing up to go see Barbie, I think there needs to be an element that makes people feel like, okay, there's more for me, you know, in this than just, you know, passing a couple of hours because I can do that at home, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of a, it's like going to the theater. It's like a whole to do now and you can be a part of of Barbenheimer. Right, right. Yeah. That's interesting. So, Jeff, you mentioned the strike. How how is the the writer's strike and now the actor's strike playing into uh, this moment in time in Hollywood? I think what we're going to see soon, unfortunately, is that studios are going to have to decide if they're going to move release dates even from next summer, right? They can't make the movies now, so that's going to push them off further. It's going to mess up the schedule. Uh, The strikes have largely been about TV and streaming, I think because culture is so much about TV and streaming. But when you think about the effect it's going to have on movies in terms of movie production stalling, which are incredibly expensive and... Mm. um, if you're shooting a movie now that you expect it to be out next summer, it's not going to be. So that is going to be a big headache for the studios. And, you know, but they're digging in really deep against the actors and the writers. So they must have a game plan. 
at the same time, you know, Netflix's stock soaring. There's newfound, you know, confidence in streaming. You see all the, the major media companies you know, trying to shed other assets and divisions to pour more money into streaming to make it profitable. So, um, yeah, if, I mean, one thing that I don't see get, getting talked about is you've lately had people, executives like Bob Iger saying it's just not realistic what they want and other people saying they don't understand how much money we're losing and so on. And the only thing I would add to that is that it was the studios that decided to go all in on streaming. They saw yes. what Netflix was doing and they said, okay, let's all do this. Let's make everybody have eight passwords they can't remember. Let's have everybody have a James Bond ripoff. Let's just shift to streaming. And that mm -hmm. has cost them a fortune. And I don't think that that's the actors or the writers fault. So I don't mm -hmm. know that they should be to blame for it or be, um, be hurt because of it. But anyway, enough of my soapbox. Um, <laughs> I love your soapbox. Uh, to wrap it up, Delia, do you have a plan for your outfit, for your Barbie viewing? Is there a whole, like, is it a party? Uh, so um, I'm going with some friends, and I think there's a party afterward where we're just going to oh, dress go. up and debrief after. So that's, yeah, that's what we're doing tomorrow. Jeff, have you picked out your outfit for Barbie yet? Um, I have no pink clothing, Brian. That's not a reaction to pink, uh, but just how I look in pink. <laughs> I do have some purple, which is sort of adjacent, so I may go there. That feels like the right play. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I'll do something. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass everybody in the theater. Do you know what I mean? I understand. Like, whose dad is that? I don't need, you know, nobody needs him. It's just exciting to have a reason to get back in theaters, not once, but twice in one weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff and Delia, thank you both for previewing it for us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good luck right. to everyone. <laughs> Once again, that was Jeff Giles, executive Hollywood editor here at Vanity Fair, and Delia Kai, our senior Vanities correspondent covering culture and celebrity. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. Email me anytime with your ideas and thoughts for future episodes. I'm at bstelter at gmail.com. And we'll be right back here in your podcast feed next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.